Hey, welcome to Riverbend, everyone. I'm Andrew, one of the pastors here. Um, today's a great day. Today's a great day for a lot of different reasons, but uh, firstly, we are concluding the seven-week series to launch our year that we've called A Fellowship of Burning Hearts, which um, I don't know about you, but it's just been really an amazing sort of inspirational moment in the life of our church. We've begun to bring some clarity to who we are becoming as a praying people. Uh, if you've been around, you know we've kind of coined this term. We want to become contemplative revivalists. Contemplative revivalists. In other words, what we mean by that is that we want to press into the presence of God. We want to slow down. We want to become aware of who he actually is. Experience him in prayer so that we may be mobilized. So that we may be sent out by God to, uh, to uh, see a great awakening in our time and in our city. Uh, so with that, I actually um, have the distinct honor and privilege privilege of inviting up a good friend of mine. If you've been around Riverbend since the beginning, since the early days, you'll actually probably remember this person and, uh, and his story. Um, Nick and Jackie Othart, when we first planted Riverbend, moved up from Bakersfield, California to be a part of the church plant. They were here for several years and were just a huge gift to our family. And then in uh, 2020, during the pandemic, um, they felt the Lord calling them back to Bakersfield, where they were from, to launch a like-hearted church. Uh, and it's called Riverend Way. It's a beautiful church, has a lot of similarities to who we are at Riverbend. Um, and we just over the years have stayed in touch, and I have so much admiration and respect for Nick. I just believe in who he is, both as like a man of God and also as like a pastor. Um, and we have the benefit of hearing from him today. So would you guys please give me a warm welcome for our friend here, Nick Othart. Love you, man. Love you too. It is a gift to be here and, and I love uh, Riverbend's leadership team. They've always felt like family. And so when you, when you plant a church together, it does something to your souls that can't be undone. It either wounds them forever or knits them together in beauty. And so ours have been knit together in beauty, which is a great story to share. So uh, I am really glad to be here with you today. My name's Nick, help pastor a, house, a network of house churches in Bakersfield, California, with my wife as a part of a team. Um, but I'm excited to be here with you for a few reasons. Reasons. Uh, the one I'm just going to share about, in a lot of ways, I'm not the Apostle Paul, but this feels like coming home to check on a thing that I got to be a part of in the early days. And so, so it feels like that. There's just this like love that I have, that our family has, for you all and for this church. And so uh, for that reason, I'm really grateful to be invited. Um, today we're going to wrap up this series on fellowship of burning hearts. This idea that Jesus wants to form his people, not just in a shift in behavior, but a change of heart to a burning heart, if you will. That the goal of the 24-7 prayer room, the goal of this series, is not some like new regimental law or practice or thing that you do, which you measure your spirituality by, but it's that we actually, at a heart level, become the people that are God's people. God's, the scriptures say God's house is a house of prayer. And so we want to see God's people become people that are people of prayer. That's what we want to see. God's people become a people that are people of prayer. And, and what that really means is not just in practice, but in life, a prayerful life. That you would spend your life communing, living into relationship 
with King Jesus. And so that's like, that's a high and lofty claim and we'll keep going for it the rest of our lives. That we live life with God in communion with him. And so today we're going to talk through and walk through Paul's prayer in 2 Thessalonians and look at what Paul is praying for the church in Thessalonica in that time. Um, And then we're going to spend some time at the end landing in where Paul's prayer lands, which is in glorification. This idea that we are glorified in Christ and Christ is glorified in us. So that's where we're going. Uh, Before I read the text, would you just join me in prayer? And before I pray, would you even just take a second to be present to yourself and present to God? We don't ever want to move past God in doing things, even as we open the text to read about, study about what God has revealed about himself. We want to move into the presence of God while we do that. So for a few seconds, I'm just going to leave some silence for you to commune with God. God, it amazes me that you are here. That you are in your people, you are in us. You are amongst your people, you are active and at work. And so as we come together, as your bride comes together, we just desire to encounter your goodness again, God. We desire to encounter your love and your care and your kindness. That you would continue to lead us toward repentance, lead us toward healthy relationship with you, lead us toward uh, us becoming the thing that you desired us to become. That we would become the people you created us to be, God. And so as we look at your scriptures, would you just form us a bit more in the way of Christ today? We receive your presence and ask for more of it, God. We trust you, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to be reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and 11 and 12. The text will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Jump down to verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word. When we look at this text, we are focusing on kind of the introduction and and conclusion of Paul's prayer in this chapter. He is sending this this book, uh, Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians, is the second letter that Paul has sent to the church in Thessalonica. Sometimes 
when we think about the letters in the scriptures of the epistles, um, they seem very abstract to us. So I just want us to like remember what it's like to write letters again, if you would. Most modern people don't write letters anymore. I remember learning, are there any letter writers in the room? Like some people are like, I always, yeah. Like there's nothing better than like a well-written, handwritten letter. But I remember as a kid learning how to address an envelope and send a letter in school, like many of you. Um, When my wife and I dated long distance, I used to write letters to her to win her heart. And for 16 years, she's been frustrated that I stopped writing letters after I won her heart. That's a slight point of contention in our family. But uh, we also make our kids write letters. We homeschool our kids, so we do all sorts of weird things that we think are amazing, like writing letters. So, um, But just as we jump into this book, I want us to understand that what we're reading is a letter from Paul. And it's to the church of Thessalonica, a church that he helped start. You can read about that in the book of Acts. But this is likely a a house church, a group of people meeting in a living room. And Paul knows most of these people personally. He knows their stories and they know his. They would have read this letter aloud in a room of people who like know Paul's quirks and his insecurities and his fears. And and they just know him like they have meaningful relationship with him. So it's it's that level of intimacy that we dive into this text, recognizing that Paul wrote this for the church at Thessalonica, but that it's also like for us today that he wrote it to them. But it's for us, if that makes sense to Thessalonica for Riverbend this morning. Paul opens his letter with what will become a standard sort of greeting for Paul in his letters. To those that belong in the church in Thessalonica, who are in God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then doubling back on his first letter to them, 1 Thessalonians, we see he instructs them to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians and then give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of Christ Jesus. And then we see Paul doing that with them. I give thanks for you always because your faith is growing more and more and the love you have for one another is increasing. Paul begins his prayers for the church as prayers of thanksgiving and affirmation. And I think just in a small way, uh, the way we treat one another within the body of Christ, it would be helpful if we learn to lead with affirmation and thanksgiving. Paul celebrates their faith and their growth before he launches into any sort of conflictual conversation or correction. Uh, I coached baseball for a really long time. And in baseball, we call this the sandwich method. If there's any coaches in the room, you know this. It means you, you start with a good thing and then you offer a critique and then you close with a good thing. You sandwich the correction in kind words. I think in biblical language, it is less about method and more about like this is what healthy love does in relationship. It seeks to build up, not to tear down. It chooses to see the best in people and care for them. And love leads with goodness, even amongst correction. And so Paul here says that their faith is growing more and more. I want you to think for just a second what it would look like, what it would mean for your faith to grow more and more. I know to most of us that feels really abstract. And I think there's a reason for that. I think sometimes when we are up close to our lives, 
and trying to analyze it for growth, it can be really hard to see. But Paul can see from a distance that the faith faith of the Thessalonican church is growing, is increasing, is maturing. I think the reason it can be so difficult to see is because when we analyze our lives for where am I growing, we look at the immediate. Like maybe I got frustrated with my spouse this morning, so I'm not growing. Or I didn't read my Bible yesterday, so I'm not growing. Or I didn't sign up for the prayer room last week, so I'm not. Like whatever it is, the immediate thing is what we look at to like measure our spiritual maturity. But if I were to ask you how you've matured in Christ Not this last week, but the last five years. Most of us would be able to step back and see a transformation over time. How Christ, how God faithfully has been maturing us more and more into his image. Most often this is played out amongst community. This is where our friction lives and where opportunity to choose love for God and others really manifests. But I just want us for this morning to see that spiritual growth and maturity is not measured in days or weeks or seasons. Spiritual maturity is measured in years, if not lifetimes. I am fascinated by trees. Any tree fans in the room? Oh, lots of tree fans. (laughs) First service had like two. We'll pray for them. Um, I'm fascinated by trees. I, I think everyone should read The Secret Life of Trees by Peter Wolobin. Um, that's my book recommendation for the day. Uh, Overstory by Richard Powers is my next read about trees. And on the way up here, I read The God of the Garden by Andrew Peterson, which is about garden and trees and spiritual life. I think, I think the original revelation, which is creation, has a lot to teach us about God. But what I love about trees is that they were here before us and they'll be here long after us. In an age that is so rushed to be something or become something or do something that feels meaningful, trees have this slow, patient, long-suffering, enduring nature about them. The pine trees that surround central Oregon are ponderosa pines. They can live up to be 400 years old. That means that the old mill, not the old mill district, but the thing that the old mill district is named after, the old mill, when it it cut the trees that lined this building when it was first built, that those trees that were milled could have been as old as the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. So there's something sacred and ancient and beautiful that we can learn from the, the long faithful obedience of digging deeper roots and growing at a slow pace. That seeds that were planted in the ground first sprouted and then those sprouts became seedlings. And those seedlings became saplings and saplings became one day a mature adult tree. You see, the process of maturing is a slow one, not a fast one. And while our instincts want to like life hack our way to something quickly, it is good that this is the process of maturity. Trees that grow too fast don't have strong enough root systems to support them during the storm. And the same is true with us. You see, you don't become mature by reading about maturity or writing about maturity or wanting to be mature. God matures you at a pace you do not get to dictate. 
We can learn from the wisdom of the scriptures, and we should. We should learn from the wisdom of others, and hopefully we do. But maturity is bound by a pace that is not completely up to you. Remember the context of this book, of this letter from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. Like the, Thess- the, the people that are a part of this church are experiencing persecution from the context of the city around them. In Acts 17, when Paul is preaching in Thessalonica, the Jewish population pushes him out. So he goes to another city. They follow him there and push him out again. So like the the context of this house church in Thessalonica is not one that's like not experiencing any conflict. They're experiencing a lot of conflict. They're experiencing hardship, and Paul is saying from a distance, over time, I see you maturing through the difficulties of following Jesus well. And that's why Paul's words are helpful, because they provide a perspective that we have to remember, that we cannot dictate what happens in life. We can only prepare ourselves to root well in Christ, because the reality is, You can talk to people about the hard moments in their life. You can read books about hard moments in their life. You can have the best like theology of suffering. You can look at the hard moments in the stories of the gospels in Jesus's life. You can study the scriptures about suffering and hardship and pain. And those are helpful ingredients in setting your roots deeper in the soil of life. But nothing matures you fully to be able to endure the hardships of life other than walking the sometimes long and lonely road of suffering and pain as you learn to identify with the suffering of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a quote that I love. I don't know who to give credit to. Neither does Google, for the record. But it says this. Out of the presses of pain cometh the soul's best wine. And the eyes that have shed no rain can shed but little shine. That's what is happening here. Paul sees their faith being tried and says, I see you enduring well. I see you maturing like a tree. I see your heart wanting God and the steps you have taken may not seem much to you at this point, but from a distance as an outsider, I can see you growing. But the byproduct, and Paul says this as he continues, the byproduct of walking in obedience to God is not just maturity for yourself. You see, that is is not the goal of the Christian life. They're like, whoever becomes the most mature in Jesus wins. That's not how it works. Okay? The aim of maturity, the aim of communion with God, the aim of like living in relationship with God is that you might receive yourself as deeply loved for the sake of God's redemptive purposes in the world. The end goal is actually not about you. It's about Christ transforming you that you might participate in his transformation of the world. And so as we look toward maturity, as we look toward slow, long obedience and faithfulness to Christ, the aim is that we might become more missional than like self-centered, if that makes sense. But Paul says the byproduct of growth and maturity in your life is that you would love one another well. That our maturity is actually measured by love lived out in the world. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's the the famous love passage that we've all heard. Love is patient, love is kind. It's often read at weddings, but what we don't 
What we need to see clearly about that passage is it's not, it's not written for married couples. It's written for the body of Christ. It's written for how I treat you and how you treat me. That's what it's written for. Love is defined in that passage to be true amongst each member. And what's interesting is Corinthians is written after Thessalonians. So, so the letter that we're in today, it, Paul has already written before he writes Corinthians. And so I can almost imagine Paul, when writing to the church in Corinth, thinking about the love he saw on display in Thessalonica and thinking to himself, what did the Corinthians need that they don't have? What was it they did that the Corinthians need to grow in? I know last week you guys looked at loving one another, but there is an invitation for us today. Like, do we need to grow in patience with one another? In kindness? In not dishonoring others? and not partnering with evil? There's an invitation for us to measure our love for the community of God against the Corinthians passage and be invited, not shamed, but invited to more robust life in Christ. I want to jump down to the bottom half of our passage, verses 11 and 12. I want to read them again as we honor God's word. With this in mind, meaning the text above, so with this in mind, the passage that Paul just taught from verses 5 to verses 10, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted to faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul jumps back into this prayer after explaining a few things above. We'll touch on one of them. In this portion of the prayer, there's a few things going on that we really want to capture, that we really want to see. The first, I think, is really simple, and I just want to point it out quickly. Paul prays these prayers like they matter. Paul's prayers, uh, he believes, have effect and meaning and purpose. So he prays these prayers like they matter. Like this is a request that he brings before God that God would consider and bring to fruition in the life of his friends. And we don't have time to get into all the theological whirlwind and nuance of that conversation. But I do want to say the trajectory of the scriptures points to prayer as having meaning not just to God's people but to God. So Paul prays these words that God might do something in the lives of the people in Thessalonica. He's not saying a prayer just to encourage people. He is praying out of expectation. This is one of the many ways uh, that what is happening at Riverbend right now is like deeply encouraging to me in my own prayer life. You see, this little prayer room is not a room of like religious practice. It has become a room of expectation of the living God. The Lord has birthed expectation in this church through much inspiration of its leadership. But I think in this moment, he wants to move the inspiration that has guided the trajectory of our expectation into manifestation. That sounds really confusing. Let me say it again. We started by being inspired to expect God. And I think what God wants to do now in his manifestation... He wants that to carry the long road of a life of prayer. 
as God manifests himself to you through prayer, through communion with him. That we no longer just live inspired, but we actually live in the experience of God, which propels us to more. Secondly, I want to notice a shift in the text around something, some phrases and words we use in common Christian culture. This note will be quick, I think. Often we talk about the term vocation or meaning or calling. We think about those words as like what we are intended to do with our work in the world. Most often we reserve the term calling or vocation for like clergy and missionaries. The problem with that is that is not at all how Paul uses this term. When Paul says in in verse 11 that our God may make us worthy of his calling, we should see that calling for people, all people, because that's what it is. It's a calling for all of God's people in the church of Thessalonica. It is not reserved for the pastors or the overseers or the church staff or the overseas missionary. It belongs, the calling of God belongs to everyone. This is a core conviction that I carry that like the church needs to catch vision for and dream of again. In a room of this size with this amount of people, all of you are filled with the Holy Spirit to participate in unique kingdom work wherever you go. It does not belong here. It does not stop here. It is not bound by a Sunday. Jesus has plans for you to live on mission wherever you show up to work tomorrow morning. And we have to like redream and see again that that is God's primary way of ministering to the world. You all will get to people I will never get to. That is just the real, like your coworkers are your coworkers. They're not my coworkers. So I think the invitation is for us not to see calling as a like specific thing that we do, but, but something we receive from the Lord as participating in his kingdom. Earlier in chapter one, uh, Paul uses that word as well, or, or kind of plays with the word language. In verse five, it says this. In speaking uh, to the Thessalonians, he says, as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And I want to pair that with verse 11 because the language parallels. In verse 5, he says, worthy of the kingdom. And in verse 11, he says, worthy of the calling. So the calling primarily is not a task. It's not a thing we do. The calling is to orientation underneath King Jesus in his kingdom. You see, me standing up here teaching the scriptures is no more worthy in the kingdom. No more worthy in the kingdom than the barista who works at back ports that intentionally memorizes her, her locals' orders and says a prayer for them under her breath as they walk in. Our orientation to the kingdom of God is not about task, but is about the heart and the lived out expression in the kingdom of one's life. You and I are called to the same thing, living in such a way that is worthy of the calling of the kingdom in worship to the king. And of course, we cannot make ourselves worthy, but because we are born again to life in Christ. It's what Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about in John 6. 
That's what Ezekiel is referencing, that like one day we will no longer have a heart of stone, but we will have a heart of flesh. The invitation of being born again and empowered by the Holy Spirit is not that we apply effort to become something new. The invitation is that we are new and to align ourselves with that reality. This is not something we manufacture on our own. It's something God has said is true about you, and you have to come to believe is true about you. That you realign your belief by the renewing of your mind with what God God said is real and true. In that shift, what becomes foundational for us is not what I want to do in the world or like the slice of pie that I feel is the thing I'm really after. But that the most basic truth of the world is that God is real and his plan of redemption is already at work amongst you and amongst me. We don't go to our workplaces and generate kingdom work. God generates the work that we just get to participate in. And so as we see that that is what is most true in the world, then our identity is formed from that truth. That God has adopted us as sons and daughters. And he desires to use your gifts and talents for his kingdom and his purposes. And he does not necessarily define what exactly that must mean for you and me. There's some freedom in the kingdom for you to use your gifts and talents for God's glory as you and your community see fit to do so. But that is your kingdom calling, not to a specific thing necessarily, although there are seasons when that is true, but to a specific way of life doing any number of things for the exaltation of Jesus. But ultimately, all of this prayer, all of chapter one, Paul prays to get us to one thing. Paul's prayer culminates in this idea of glorification or of glory. The passage in 2 Thessalonians is stating that Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us being glorified in him. And the word glorified means to be adorned with glory. The word glorified means to be adorned with glory. So Paul's prayer is that we may adorn God with glory and in turn God may adorn us with glory. Now, some people believe that this is a prayer about our glory after death. That we will experience Christ in full one day once we die when we are with him completely. And that that's what this passage is getting after. I I don't think that's completely right to see the passage that way. I believe it shortchanges Paul's intention of what he's trying to communicate to the church. Others believe that this is like uh, the idea of God's glory is like a reflection of a mirror. That you and I have no glory in and of ourselves, so we are just mirrors reflecting God's glory. I think that's closer to being right, but I don't think it's fully true either. I think the glory of Christ in us, the glory of us in Christ is a bit different than a reflection and not just reserved for death. And the reason I believe that comes from Exodus 33 and 34. In that passage of scripture, there is this interplay between Moses, who is talking, communing, praying, being with God. There's this great dialogue going on where God is saying, I want you to lead the people and move them over here. And Moses is saying, that's fine, but you have to go with us. We don't want to go without you. And God's like, that's cool. I'll go with you. And then Moses, in my opinion, has this really courageous line that seems like out of nowhere. 
He says, show me your glory. And what, what actually captivates me about the story is God agrees to show Moses his glory. He says, if I do in full, it will actually kill you. You won't be able to live. So God tells Moses to stand on a rock and I'll cover your face. And after I pass by, you can see me. You can see my glory. But what's interesting about the story that unfolds in Exodus 34 is that after Moses encounters God's glory, he comes down the mountain and his face is radiant. It's glowing. God's glory has not just like been seen. It's been encountered and it's transformed Moses himself. So when Moses comes down the mountain and he interacts with people, he has to put a veil over his face. But every time he goes back to commune with God and he comes back down, his face is radiant again. It's glowing again. Moses is not merely reflecting God's glory. He's being changed by the glory that God is sharing with him. Let me explain real quick. I have four sons, four boys. And one of the things they love to do most is make a fire in our fire pit. Gladly it's in the fire pit, not just like make fire, but make a fire in the fire pit in our backyard. Inevitably, once the fire gets going, one of them gets a stick and sticks it in the burning fire until it catches on fire. And then they wave it around to make smoke and let ashes fall and do beautiful things that kids do. And that fire on the end of the stick, that glory in the fire that is shared with them, eventually like it, it fades away from the stick. But as soon as that happens, our kids put the stick right back in the fire to get more glory, more fire, to bring back out again and enjoy. And so they relight and share again and again and again in the glory that is the fire that they get to participate in, that is transitioned, it, it transformed the stick in their hand, that is not the source of the fire, but when the stick interacts with the fire, it becomes a carrier of glory itself. You see, that is what glory is. It is God's glory that he shares with those who commune with him, who come to him, who pray earnestly to him. One of the things that I love about God's glory, and it's not just God's glory, it's really all things sacred, is that because of the vastness and proximity of sacred things, they overtake you. These are the moments in life like when we heard the first cry of our children. When we stood on top of the Rocky Mountains in Canada and looked at the landscape. When we finally practiced Sabbath enough that it actually felt like a deep rest for the first time. These are like deep breaths down in our soul that overtook us. And think about your own moments. Moments on the mountaintop or at the ocean or in the desert. And not only creation, but moments of birth and death and marriage and friendship and all beautiful things that come in God. These deep and sacred things, these glorious things. But what I love is that you do not consume glory. You cannot, but glory can only consume you. Glory only can consume 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 in referencing back to the Exodus 33-34 passage says this. And we all 
who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. This is the aim of Paul's prayer. That God may adorn you with glory as means of transformation. That you might actually become something different as you encounter the living God. When we look at it that way, it reminds me of a quote from a C.S. Lewis novel. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we are first being introduced to some of the characters in the story. And Lucy, the youngest of the four children, is in Narnia, conversing with a character named Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan being back in Narnia and then getting to see him soon. And Lucy says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. You see, God's glory was not safe for Moses, and it is not safe for you and I. God's glory does away with all pretense, all fraudulence, all insincerity. God's glory casts aside all impurity. God's glory is like the refining fire that, while at times may seem scary, is the best good that God offers to us from himself. That we might be changed and transformed. And this is Paul's prayer, that we become people of glory. That the means of being changed is encountering God's presence again and again and again. And as the fire dies out, you go back to God's presence and encounter him again. That God's glory rubs off on us because of our lives being lived out in communion with him. That as we come down the mountain of the prayer room or the prayer closet or whatever way you commune with God, that your face might be glowing in the world too. And if I were to speak to the heart of where Riverbend is in this moment, I would say this. There is this, at least in my limited time being here, there is this growing sense of being on the edge of something beautiful. And as I've just like meditated and asked the Lord what that is, I just continue to sense the Lord saying like, it's just a taste of what's to come. But what I sense the Lord is wanting is deep consecration from his people, you don't get to consume glory, glory consumes you. Which means complete devotion and giving yourself to King Jesus. And this is the key because regardless of outcome, just wanting him, wanting God, not for the things he brings or the things he does, but wanting God because of who he is. I really feel like God wants to adorn you with his glory this morning. But he also like doesn't want you to hold back from him. I think as I've just been praying and listening, like God wants to see your face light up with glory again. See your heart be overcome with glory. And so if you would, just as we move toward response and close, if you would take the risk and be willing to come, my prayer is that God would do something beautiful in your heart as you ask God, like, would you show me your glory?
Would you show me your glory again? Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for who you are. Even more than what you do, we thank you for who you are, God. That we only respond in love because of your love for us. And so God, would you continue to transform our hearts as we encounter you again, Jesus? God, would you, would you show us your glory? Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you light a fire in the depths of our soul again? That would be caught up not with many things or with you and other things, but that would be caught up in you, Jesus. And so God, we just trust you and we love you and we thank you for this time. Thank you that you save us and continue to transform us because of your love. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we move toward response, uh, I would just like to announce the tables are open. Um, and so when it feels right over the course of this next song, would you grab the elements of communion? Um, and as we come to God in prayer and in teaching and in singing, let us continue to come to God as we gather the elements, recognizing that like the deepest part of who we are wants to encounter the living God today. Would you share your glory with us, King Jesus? Would you love